Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin McDonald, also an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Tuesday, February 8th. Schedule off a little bit this week after last week's snowstorm, but lots of great content we're excited to bring to you. And again, we love the podcast as it's a way not only for you to take us with you to the gym, on your walk, to work, in the car, but it's a way for us to bring you content we just don't have time for in the show each and every week limited to an hour and there's so much more to talk about and so this is a great way to do that and this week we're going to kick things off with a terrific interview we did on Facebook live last week with host Gene Grant he was joined by Terry Bruner that's a name you may be familiar with he's uh, done a lot in the political realm in the last 10 to 15 years including a stint with the USDA and in the time with the USDA and what he's doing now with a nonprofit called Pivotal New Mexico really focusing on the needs of rural New Mexico which we're hearing time and time again in the legislature on the campaign trail uh, even in the most recent census data the growing divide between urban and rural New Mexico and so especially with so many billions of dollars of federal infrastructure money coming our way. It's super important to understand what the needs of rural New Mexico are. And there are some very good reasons why we don't necessarily know that or struggle to identify those needs. And there is a new report done by Terry Bruner and Pivotal New Mexico that really identifies some of those issues as well as some of the needs. Some of them things we all know, broadband, we have one of the worst connectivity issues in the entire country, but there's a lot of other things involved in this, again, including how we track these things and how we prioritize these things, uh, as well as some other hangups that make this very difficult in New Mexico, could really use some addressing. And so they really broke down this report and what it found. And it's a fascinating read. We will have the link to the full report in the show description if you want to check that out. And you should encourage you to do that. But here now, host Gene Grant and Pivotal New Mexico's Terry Bruner. I'm here with Terry Bruner. You might know his name from a lot of different endeavors over the years here in the state of New Mexico, from the USDA, from a lot of other federal things, even the mayoral last couple of mayoral runs here. Terry's been around it. He's been around politics a long time at the federal level. And we're very glad he's with us today to talk about a report he and his group have out about infrastructure needs in the rural parts of our state. Uh, I'm going to be referring to the report itself as Terry and I talk here. So the link to it's going to be in the thread below. If you'd like to read along uh, in the different sections we're going to be talking about here, I would encourage you to do so. Whether you can do it today or tomorrow or the next week, I would encourage you to do so whenever you can. I consider this a very important piece of information that we have been needing to have for a long time. So, Terry, thank you very much. Tell us about the group, the name, what it's about, who funds you folks, and what the plan was going into this uh, report. So our group is called Pivotal New Mexico. We're a nonprofit located in Albi. really is to help. Uh, New Mexico organizations get the funding they need to advance the projects that are important to their groups. Um, so uh, we've been ex in existence for a few years, funded by several different New Mexico and out-of-state foundations, and also through contract work that we do with governments and, uh, and nonprofits. And we were asked by the legislature uh, last year to compile a report on New Mexico's rural infrastructure needs in the areas of broadband, electric, sewer and water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's cut these uh, just a little bit finer here. I, wanna, I don't want to swing back to those four issue areas here, but interestingly, what the theme that really comes out in this report is there's a lot of issues here, deferred maintenance issues, the, the fact that we have not invested in our infrastructure for too long, now we're playing catch up. And I realize a lot of folks are probably going to get hung up on the costs of these things. <laughs> so I want to start somewhere philosophically on this. It, it really is a situation that we can either pay to catch up or we can just pay forever to never catch up, isn't it? it now is the time to strike, it seems to me. That's the, this is what the report is saying. Yeah, you, you have the money in the bank now to make a giant mm -hmm. impact on, on the, the deficit we have, in a sense, in broadband and, and water and, and sewer. So um, yeah, you'll never quite always catch up. Um, because, you know, things need to be repaired and everything, but 
we have have not been strategically um, uh, on top of taking care of all these needs um, in the past decade or so. So we do we have a bit of a lag. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about broadband. That's one of the four issues issue areas there, and we could take an hour on this. <laughs> it's so complicated. But give me your top line assessment from the report about what's missing for. Uh, New Mexicans here when it comes to infrastructure and being connected to the world and what it's costing us in the report. Well, you know, as you know, New Mexico's got the lowest speeds in the nation and, and some of the worst coverage. Um, so, you know, even in the areas that we have coverage, the, the, the speeds aren't uh, up to standard na nationwide. So um, we really lack a strategic way of looking at broadband, um, similar to like how you look at a highway system where, you know, certain highways need improvements because a lot of people travel on them and those are the priority. The same thing is true with broadband. We really have to focus on where the high needs are and then, mm -hmm. and then have a strategy to leverage all the different funding that's out there to complete as many projects as possible. And, and that's what we've been doing in the past is one-offs and there hasn't really been a strategy behind it. And, mm -hmm. and throughout our document, we really um, talk about that need for planning and, and um, a strategic outlook on how you're going to get these needs funded. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you ended with that word funded, because, again, the focus of the report is helping communities and municipalities find a way to fund not just the, their needs, but to fund, Terry, as well the kind of expertise you need. We have a lot of situations where we're using volunteer help <laughs> for water yeah. projects and infrastructure projects. That's got to end. It's got to be professional, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, 67% of our state's water systems have less than 500 users. And a lot of those systems are 40 household systems that are literally a mom and pop operation with mom and pop running the water system. And, you know, we lack a number, the number of, of water managers we need and engineers. I mean, we say in the report, there really ought to be an effort to train more water engineers at our universities or attract mm -hmm. engineering firms from out of state because you know they there's so much work at the moment to be done. We don't have nearly the number of professional service people to work on deploying uh, 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 the resources that we need to mm -hmm. fix up these systems. Mm -hmm. Let me bounce back to uh, broadband for a quick sec. Yeah, I've, my fault they're taking us off to water and hold water for for a quick second you're calling for a group to and you mentioned this i want to get a little more detail a group to actually oversee the needs of the entire state when it comes to broadband infrastructure i'm going to assume that also means someone's going to have to be tasked to collate what we have now am i am i correct on that before we can start yeah. to make plans for the future we we've done some decent planning as a state to catalog what we have Mm -hmm. um, but we really don't have a strategy, uh, system by system, community by community for moving forward and, and how to get that done. I think our, our current governor is getting there and, and mm -hmm. she's appointed some infrastructure people to help with this that I think is a real great move. But, you know, you have issues out there like right-of-way issues. That's a little bit of an obscure part of the law. But, uh, you know, when I was a federal executive, we had broadband projects in the Navajo Nation held up for two years on a, on a on a, a right-of-way issue. And we recommend a right-of-way commission to navigate those disputes uh, so that okay. you don't end up deploying $10 million for a broadband system that never gets built because of a right-of-way system. But there's things like that that we can chip away at to make the process go a little faster. Interesting. Um, how about things like uh, what it costs to have broadband infrastructure. In the report, it makes an interesting case that if you uh, dollar, you're going to get back a bunch more than that down the road within 20 years. I think that would be news to most people when it comes to investment. Well, that the you mean that the investment pays itself off in the long run? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, all of the stuff we talk about in infrastructure is are really the building blocks behind a successful educational system, public health system, you know, economy, all those types of things. When you're not deploying these uh, these needs at the at the rate you ought to, you're you're taking away from the potential to have that growth. Um, but if you if you uh, configure these systems in a smart fashion, you're going to reap a return on them. Let's kick over to water here real quick. This is a big issue for us here at New Mexico PBS. We've been following 
obviously a lot of things when it comes to water, meaning, you know, polluting of water in different ways. But the report points out, and let's get back to how water is managed here. Something needs to come together and, and tell us about what the report is recommending in, on that front. Yeah, I, I think um, what, we, what we're recommending on a couple of fronts are, you know, more planning and technical assistance. So, mm -hmm. you know, more expertise out in the field from state agencies to help water managers. You know, this, the Environment Department has three people that staff a telephone line. Uh, for people to call in with water difficulty. I mean, mm -hmm. they reported us that they could use three or four times that number of staff just to manage all those calls. Um, so that, you know, and we hear consistently from water systems that they've broken down and there's no mm -hmm. one to help them. So, you know, really there's this troubleshooting and problem solving thing we need to get to where we're helping people manage these systems. We ought to think about regionalization of systems that cannot perform on their own. Um, so if you have a bunch of small systems, they can use water more efficiently if they team up. So mm -hmm. uh, there should be some advocacy on that front from the state government. And um, as well, like we keep saying, there ought to be some sort of system to prioritize which projects need funding based on maybe where they are in your water supply map or how right. many people they serve, that, that those get to the front of the line because they're more crucial. We don't really do that. It's kind of, you know, everybody fight for themselves kind of thing, which mm -hmm. isn't a great way to plan it out. And there are some, you have some recommendations that some other states have gotten their arms around that very issue you're talking about. Touch on that a little bit more, that regional approach you're describing. Yeah. I mean, the state of Colorado has a good system for, uh, for their water funding, where they have only two agencies that deal with water funding for local communities. We have six or eight different ones that communities have to navigate. And then they have, a, they have Colorado divided up into regions and they have staff in every region that get to know that area and help develop and work on projects. So there's this local state government presence that's there when communities need them. And, and that's a real logical way to do it. Um, it's a great way to be out in the field monitoring what's happening on infrastructure. We have a similar system with the way we do highways. We have regional transportation and highway districts because that local uh, presence by the state is important. We should do the same on water and broadband. Mm -hmm. What's the downside to the system we have now? What, what's going on that, that begs for this sort of uh, renewed approach when it comes to water? Well, I think the problem that we've had is after years of austerity and trimming government, we literally don't have enough people working in government to deal with the, the volume of infrastructure needs that we have. So it's time to staff up or restructure government in such a way that you can deploy these, these resources more efficiently. I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy that a small community water system, if they need a repair, has six or eight different state agencies they can call. You know, why not have one agency or two? The state of right. Utah, the state of Montana, Colorado, Oregon, they have one or two agencies that deal with this. For some reason, We've dispersed it out throughout agencies and made it pretty difficult for people to navigate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when you look at the map, Terry, in your report, the eastern part of our state in this water part, water bit of the report really shows up quite a bit. Those those counties that hug, uh, you know, basically from Roosevelt County going north, Curry County, go, you know, all that kind of thing. What's going on in the eastern part of our states that makes water management so difficult? Is, is it something unique to that part of the state? Well, I mean, each region of the state kind of has its own traditions, um, you know, in and how they've grown as water systems and such. You know, you have some private providers out on the east side of the state, which is a little different from mm -hmm. other parts of the state. And then you have a dwindling population, which affects the ability to manage a water system. The fewer users you have in a system, the less people are paying bills and less money you have. So um, those parts of the state have tra traditionally had municipal systems. And then not a lot of the small systems that are mutual domestic or mom and pop systems, as I would call them, that you see in northern New Mexico, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's really been more of a municipal function in that part of the state. So that's why you see it centered and clustered around towns like Clayton and Texaco and, and places like that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, we're talking a lot of money here. And obviously, your group is designed to help folks find that money. How bad is the water infrastructure generally in New Mexico? Are we at a very poor place, sort of just needs a little help? Or how should folks consider where we are on water infrastructure currently? 
Well, I mean, you know, it's it's a, like a lot of stuff in New Mexico. We have a lot of uh, systems that are performing adequately. We have a lot that are not performing at all um, where they should be, and and maybe they're um, having a lot of difficulty. So, um, you know, that's not unique around the nation in a sense, um, mm -hmm. but uh, but definitely when you think about tribal systems, colonial systems down in the southern part of the state, um, some of our really rural spots. Um, or you know, uh, little communities in northern New Mexico, they're having trouble um, because one of the problems is concrete costs money and um, treating arsenic and contaminants in the water costs money. And as keep up with EPA standards, these systems have to get more and more sophisticated. So a small system that might've performed for 50 years doing just fine is suddenly right. finding they have to really ramp up and that's a struggle. You know, it's interesting. We see these giant water tanks. We don't think about their life cycle. You know what I mean? It's just re reclaiming a water tank is no small deal. So that's that would be just a stark example. Um, let's take it to another part of the report. Uh, climate change, cyber attacks, and extreme weather. 50 billion you're reporting to protect against droughts, heat, flood, wildfires, and other uh, weatherization. The time is now for that, isn't it? Especially when you consider wildfires. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, that's the other side of this is the emergency side of it. You know, uh, water, you know, we need drinking water. We need mm -hmm. uh, sewer treatment that prevents water contamination. We need broadband when there's a public emergency. So so nailing those down are really important. Um, I don't believe our, our state emergency management agency has a lot of flexible funding when those things come about. Mm -hmm. um, so we really need to think uh, in terms of what we do in case of emergency. You've seen with cyber attacks recently that they can bring down a whole water system or right. a wastewater system or an entire our most populous county in the state had a mm -hmm. cyber attack. And these are the type of things that we need to get ahead of rather than respond to from behind and after they happen. So, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother level of funding and work that has to really be done. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the legislature. Obviously, they're going to have a, a pretty heavy hand in how this all works out. Uh, Governor Lujan Grisham has announced that former Albuquerque mayor, someone you know well, Marty Chavez, is now the infrastructure czar of a sorts. I'm curious to your opinion on the need for that. Is that the appropriate way to go to have one person at the top of it sort of overseeing or is, or is there a better way or what's your sense of it so far? Well, what we call for is really kind of having a committee led by the, the governor's office that, that is constituted of the, um, that consists of the, the heads of agencies to talk about infrastructure. But mm -hmm. given that we're in this kind of emergency or last you know, uh, rapid deployment of infrastructure funds, I think um, the governor's assembled kind of an all-star team to, to come in and help. So you know, nobody knows municipal infrastructure better than Mayor Chavez. And you know, they've got Mike Hammond, the former director of the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, mm -hmm. Bianca Ortiz Wertheim, who's Senator Udall's former chief of staff. They've got a new broadband director from the state of Illinois. I, I think the governor has been wise to bring in these experts to, to help deploy these funds. But in the long term, really um, what we call for is, um, is for the executive of the state, the governor, to convene a group that's meeting on a regular ba basis to hack out all the different infrastructure issues we have. That would make sense, it would seem to me. Um, one issue that's in the report that I found really fascinating is about the state's anti-donation clause. And the reason for that is there's a lot of money being, you know, exposed, you know, you're talking about here in this report, I'm talking a lot of money. And the anti-donation clause has been a real controversy about how one gets funds moving back and forth. Um, it, it, do me a favor, tell the folks about the Colorado situation you referenced in the report. And then I'd like to hear your opinion about where we could possibly go with the anti-donation clause that could make some of this a little bit easier for municipalities? Yeah, I mean, what we say is that the anti-donation clause really has a chilling effect on infrastructure. We see that especially in the area of broadband. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, under the anti-donation clause, you can only uh, distribute state monies through a state entity. Um, and so you can't contribute to a private broadband system. You can't contribute in some cases to various types of municipal systems because they're, you know, could be run by a private broadband system. And, and what the state of Colorado has done to get around that is talk about public need and, and make provisions within their clause to say, if there's a demonstrated public need, 
for something like broadband, then you should be able to deploy that infrastructure funding. But you know, the state of New Mexico has uh, created a couple of broadband funds that they had difficulty deploying because they simply couldn't give it to the people that run broadband systems. Right. And so you end up trying to finagle a way to get that money out the door that's slow, awkward, and doesn't really meet the need. So um, the other difficulty we have with the anti-donation clause is when you change it, it's a constitutional amendment that has to go to a vote. So, so the state really needs to get on what they're going to do about it because any type of change to that's going to take a couple of years. Right. Um, but it, but uh, you know what I'm very worried about, and our partners in writing this report are worried about, is is this federal money coming down along with state money and just not being able to use it like we mm -hmm. should. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the lines here that really caught my eye and should catch anybody's eye if they read this report, and I'm again, I'm going to encourage our viewers to do so. We'll have a link in the in the thread below. That there was a the business roundtable in an infrastructure infrastructure study found that for every dollar invested in infrastructure, delivers three dollars and seventy cents in economic growth over twenty years when factoring in household income and other economic indicators. That to me, Terry, seems like you know, if you're going to think long term, how do you pass that kind of how do you pass that up? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I, I, it's pretty clear. Yeah, I don't know how we pass it up. I mean, we're not even talking about the fact that when you do an infrastructure project, you're hiring people to do the construction, they're buying supplies in the local community. Um, you know, you're doing all sorts of good. And and I think the problem is, is infrastructure is just not a sexy topic and it's not forefront on people's minds. And so it often gets, uh, you know, left behind. And, and it's more often than not these days, a state by state competition. You know, companies want to locate in a place where they have this infrastructure in place. I mean, we talked to business owners across the state that said our lack of broadband is inhibiting their growth as a business. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, if we want economic development. We got to have broadband that's competitive. And right now we are the least competitive state with our broadband. Yeah, it really is. It really is amazing. I'm I'm. I'm I go back to Mayor Chavez in the in the, the challenge he's going to have and his team, his all-star team, as you, as you call them, and that is how to set priorities and who gets in first. And I'm interested in how Colorado did it with the Colorado Together We Build report. They prioritize projects using three criteria, one immediate, two enduring, and three equitable. That makes a lot of sense to me when you think about it from a New Mexico lens. How, how does that strike you? Yeah, we, we like that. And then, you know, a couple other states like Oregon had uh, early in the recovery back in early 2020, uh, put out principles behind how they would spend their recovery funds. And they address mm -hmm. things like equity or preparedness or whatever. And, and I think we should do the same thing because um, what's happening is the people that get funded are the, the ones that know how to work the system. Right. And, and they have an engineering firm or they, you know, they've spent, they've invested the money to get shovel ready, but shovel ready always leaves out a few that aren't quite shovel ready, that need a little extra helping hand for some reason. And, and so if you're going to be equitable about it, you really have to figure out a system by which you can reach out and help those most in need. And we don't, again, we don't have that. It's the state takes in the applications or funding they take in. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we, we need to be far more strategic and thoughtful about it. Terry, one of the difficulties I'm sure you guys have talked about is how to get all the local agencies on board and going in the same direction because we have other entities out there like the PRC, they're gonna be critical in, in, in all these decisions. What's your sense of how able you're able to get everybody in the room, so to speak, and getting moving in the same direction in New Mexico? Well, I mean, that, that all comes down to leadership. I mean, somebody mm -hmm. has to decide in the state they wanna take this on and, and start leading on this issue because you're absolutely right. I mean, the PRC is kind of off doing its own thing. You know, the environment department's doing another, the Department of Finance Administration's doing another, and the legislators are doing something with their capital outlay. And it really calls for somebody to wrangle all these cats and, and get them together to figure out how we're gonna do this in the right way. I've seen that done in the past. I mean, prior administrations have figured that out. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I. You know, I, I understand we're in the middle of uh, a global pandemic. There's a lot of challenges right now. So infrastructure, again, might not get 
the attention it needs, but really for the long term, it's the time is right now to set up the systems we need to start uh, planning more responsibly on this front. I got to say on a bit of a side note, I'm not sure what your opinion on this might be, but it also seems to me reading over this report, this is what begs a full-time legislature. <laughs> because what you've got going on here in this report cannot be chopped at in 60 or 90 days. It, it, it cannot. Not this amount of money, not this amount of decision making. I, I'm curious your, your opinion on that, I, or, or at least an ongoing uh, committee of some sort, interim committee yeah. at the least. There is some interim work, but you know clearly uh, we testified um, on four occasions with the Rural Economic uh, Task Force interim committee on this issue, and you know it's clear that legislators struggle um, understanding what's going on in infrastructure. They have a lot to worry about, and and you're asking a part-time legislator to intricately know the infrastructure system, but also know our educational system. I mean, it's a tough it's a tough challenge. And in the past, used to have a few legislators that were experts that developed that expertise. Um, but we have a lot of new members, um, and I think they're still learning about how to confront this big issue. So, yeah, it definitely calls for a full-time legislature, probably more staffing as well, so that they can get their get a handle on these issues. It's the moment. It really is. Yeah. Hey, Terry Bruner, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here on uh, our. Usual Wednesday noon-ish Wednesday Facebook Lives, and we appreciate your time, your effort, but especially the amount of work you and your team have put into this. I think, again, I'm going to say it again, I think it's a very important document that decision makers here really need to, to roll their sleeves up on, not just kind of breeze over it, but really kind of consider what you folks are saying here, because this could be the corner we need to take here. So, Terry, if we can catch up with you as time moves along and see how things are going, that'd be a great favor, actually. All right, anytime, Gene. Thank you for Absolutely. the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We will see you Friday night at 7 o'clock on Channel 5.1 for the regular show. And until then, the snow is still coming down. Wherever you may be, be safe. Enjoy it. It's winter here in New Mexico. It's beautiful. We'll see you next time. All right, let's head back into our line opinion panel discussion from last week. And a reminder, joining us were... Uh, line regular, Sophie Martin, she's an attorney, also an attorney, Ed Perea, former law enforcement officer as well, and Rebecca Latham, CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico and a former cabinet secretary under then-governor Susana Martinez. This is a topic that you have probably read about, putting New Mexico on the national scene, in the national spotlight. That has to do with investigations over possible election fraud. Uh, revolving around the certification of the presidential vote in 2020 and uh, several of New Mexico's uh, election officials were uh, have admittedly admitted to signing false documents that show that Trump won the presidential election in New Mexico. It's a fascinating discussion. New Mexico is one of seven states at the center of this. New Mexico, as you're going to find out from this conversation, a little different than some of those other states, and that difference may provide enough cover to protect the people at the center of it. But also interesting, one of these uh, electors uh, claims that he was instructed to falsify this document on the behest of Steve Pierce, former congressman and current head of the state Republican Party. Uh, don't know where this is all going to lead, but New Mexico right at the center of it. So let's dive into this fascinating conversation. Here again, host Gene Grant. All right, now the political disagreement may have turned criminal. A U.S. House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection had subpoenaed more than a dozen people. It says falsely tried to declare Donald Trump winner in key states. And that includes New Mexico. According to recent reports, Mr. Trump's then attorney, Rudy Giuliani, led the scheme. Let's get to our line panelists. Rebecca Latham, how much of a black eye is this for New Mexico? I think it's weird. It's mm -hmm. I think it's horribly embarrassing. Uh, personally, um, the. Uh, what the root cause of it was? Was it just to cause disruption, confusion, or if it was general, genuine belief uh, that Trump did win the election in New Mexico? It seems bizarre. I will give credit to New Mexico and uh, I think it was uh, Pennsylvania who who did put a, a caveat in about 
um, that, you know, that this was, they're sending this, this falsified document, sending this letter uh, as a just in case. Um, mm -hmm. and, instead of other states, uh, I think Nevada actually sent two different documents uh, that right. were both from the Republican Party. Um, so it, it, the whole thing, it's, it smells like a, like a Da Vinci Code style, uh, mm -hmm. you know, coup. I, I, it's bizarre. And it has been really interesting to see how it's playing out in the national news. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, Sophie, one of the electors uh, from New Mexico says that GOP chairman Steve Pierce directed him to falsely give the state's electoral votes to Donald Trump. I guess it's a flat out ask. Is this a disqualifying discovery? I mean, this is seems pretty serious to me. That's a big deal. And it, and it does seem like um, the, the subpoenas are really focused on trying to figure out who was behind these activities, where the direction came from, the path which they traveled into the various states leading to these, leading to these namings of false electors, et cetera. And so Steve Pierce's involvement, of course, you know, if it is true, is going to be very interesting to the congressional committee focused on January 6th, um, which, is, which is who, you know, who has issued these subpoenas. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, it sort of feels picking up a little bit on what Rebecca was saying about how New Mexico and Pennsylvania submitted these kind of just in case letters, you know, there's this meme on the mm -hmm. internet that's like, mess around and find out. Um, <laughs> but messing around and finding out can have real legal consequences. And I think that um, although, you know, at least one of the members of this group, Jewel Paldral, he said he has no regrets whatsoever. We're going to see whether um, charges end up, end up being filed against folks, against these um, these five and potentially more New Mexicans um, who, who are involved. Who are the five, in the by the way? I All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list them out for you. It's it's okay. Jewel Powdrell, who is a retired businessman um, from Albuquerque. Deborah Maestas is a former chair of the Republican Party of New Mexico and was deputy campaign manager on Alan Way's Senate campaign mm. back in 2014. Lupe Garcia is a business owner in Albuquerque. Rosie Tripp is the national committee woman for the Republican Party here in New Mexico and, and well known, of course, from her elected positions in Socorro County. Anissa Fortinen, former executive director of the state Republican Party. So a lot of these are really uh, well-known names here. And then and then it's understood that Harvey Yates was uh, the um who was chair of the Republican Party from 2009 to 2010, was expected to sign, but it sounds like he did not. Gotcha. But he did Interesting. not. Interesting. So, yeah. I mean, that's a real, that's, that's a pretty much a who's who in New Mexico Republican politics. I mean, not literally everyone, but, but those are some pretty well-known names here. That's a good point, Sophie. These aren't, uh, you know, underlings in some far-flung county that had to get talked into something unknowingly. And Ed, you know, I was watching something on one of the national cable shows the other night. You know, people need to realize these are serious charges, that come with them four to five year sentences for falsifying things on federal documents. This is not just like forging, you know, something for your kid's PTA class or, or, or a field trip. This is serious business. How should we as citizens uh, think about this? Well, this was an assault on our democracy. I, I mean, right. I think, you know, I, I'd love to get uh, more information. And I know that that's what the January 6th commission is doing, is trying to get answers. Who was behind it? Who was, who, who was the, the puppet master? Uh, mm -hmm. And then this, it, this appears to be part of a broader conspiracy that if we start to connect the dots, this piece of the electoral uh, votes may have just been one component piece of a, of a broader plan. Uh, I, what role did the January 6th riots, were, they, were those in some way somehow connected to this master plan? And when did this right. start? Right. The information I'm hearing is, is it started right after the, the, the election results. As soon as Biden was, uh, was announced the, the winner, there was a, a plan that was put into motion. And if that's the case, there needs to be some level of accountability. If we take our democracy seriously, there must be accountability. And you know, for those local, since it's touched us locally, I'd mm -hmm. I, I, I like to hear more right now. They've just been subpoenaed to, to answer questions. And, and once they uh, respond to the subpoenas and answer some of the questions the committee might have, mm -hmm. it may shed a little more light as to what's going on. But as you said, Gene, it is a criminal act. And right. what will happen as a result of, of the action that this, this group of individuals took. 
one of the mm -hmm. members is, was mentioned that he has no regrets. Well, I wonder if there are federal charges applied, whether right. some right. regrets might start to seep in. And we need to take this issue very, very seriously. Our democracy uh, is at stake. Mm -hmm. I was very surprised by that quote. I'll tell you honestly, I thought that was like getting way out in front of it. And Rebecca, I, I, I've got to ask, you know, a, a lot of Republicans think Donald Trump won that election. And so I got to ask, is, is this possibly going to have some bounce in our roundhouse and on decorum? Because a lot of people feel very seriously about this, that it was stolen and they're just not going to move one way or the other. Uh, any bounce you can anticipate from this? I'm not sure about bounce, but it's definitely yeah. playing very heavily in in the uh, leading up to the Republican primary for for our governor's race. And, gotcha. you know, there you really if you're going to if you're going to win as a Republican in New Mexico, you've got to do so as a Trump ally. You can't you you can't separate from Trump even still and then expect to to win right. the Republican vote. I, I will mm -hmm. say that I will be very curious in watching in watching this um, because the seven states that participated, it, it almost is this, I, I feel like there should there will be some sort of a, a statement that says like, oh no, 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 you guys have this all wrong. This is not, that's not what we were trying to do because right. it almost <laughs> was like, you know, the fact that every state has their own style of, you know, what they send, and these seven states sent a template letter that all looked the same, just changed right. out the names, you know, of course, of course, it would come to light, of course, they were going to get caught. And so it doesn't feel like something that is so masterfully planned, where they all met in secrecy, you know, on the same day and did all these things, that, that they would always just use a, you know, a copycat. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. How interesting. Um, Sophie, I'll give you the last word on this. We get about 20 seconds. Of course, I have a feeling this could be way bigger for the Republican Party in New Mexico than folks are realizing. This thing could rage like a wildfire, considering who is you know, involved in the charges, as Ed mentioned, yet to come down. Should folks be nervous here? Well, I mean, here's the question, right? Given the current political environment, what we've seen over the last however many years, is is this a badge of honor or dishonor within the Republican Party? And I think that's going right. to say a lot about, you know, about the future of our democracy in New Mexico, in the country as a whole. It, I think it is very much the case that in many parts of the Republican Party, many sectors, um, right on let's, you know, let's keep doing this. This looks great. And, and so I, it's very hard at this moment to predict what the outcome is going to be. Fair enough. A lot of push and pull going on there. Yeah. Hey, thanks again to our line panel. Awesome stuff as always. Now this week, now be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics we covered on our show this week. Go to Facebook, Twitter, or our Instagram pages. Got a question for you. How familiar are you with the New Mexico Game Commission? If you're like me, not a lot. Uh, we know that the Game Commission deals with wildlife issues in New Mexico, but that's just scratching the surface. And recently, one of the commissioners on that Game Commission was uh, let go by the governor, which is totally allowed. These are at-will positions, but there was no explanation there. And Jeremy Vesbach is that commissioner. He has some ideas around why that happened. And also, quick to point out that there are only currently four sitting game commissioners, which is just barely enough to do the work they are tasked with doing. So we wanted to talk to him, get his thoughts about his time there, what happened at the end, and offer a primer on what exactly the Game Commission is and what they are charged with. In addition, you'll hear at the end, uh, we did ask the governor for a response about her decision. We've got that included in here for you as well, so that you have a better understanding of all of that. But here now, former Game Commissioner Jeremy Vesbach, who sat down with our environment reporter, Laura Paskus. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks, Laura. I'm really glad to be here. Excited to talk about wildlife today. Thanks. <laughs> so you were, until recently, on the New Mexico Game Commission. And I just want to start with some basics. What is the New Mexico Game Commission? Well, until I was, well, and I was still on there until a couple of weeks ago, I, I took to calling it the Wildlife Commission because game has become a little bit of an outmoded term to a lot of people in New Mexico, but it really started in 1921, 101 years ago this year, to um, 
protect the wildlife species in New Mexico. And at that time, the major threat was unregulated uh, hunting, that you know, we had commercial hunting. And so to kind of get that under control, create science-based wildlife management, um, people at the time really rallied to create a system that brought science forward, but also brought public input forward and created what's called the New Mexico Game Commission to oversee the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, which is our state wildlife agency. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham recently removed you from the Game Commission, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but the commission focuses, uh, you know, a lot on hunting and fishing, but there's also some other issues that affect kind of everybody or the public as well. Can you um, touch on some of those? Like, for instance, I remember the, the state's participation in the wolf reintroduction program. Um, is is kind of an issue that draws a lot of attention whenever that comes up. But what are some of the other ones? Well, sure. Yeah, the, there's a state endangered species act, and the Department of Game and Fish is the one that is responsible for recovering species that are in trouble, and um, that can be everything from the Texas hornshell mussel to the lesser prairie chicken to uh, gray wolves, um, the uh, Mexican wolf in New Mexico. So. Um, setting those habitat conservation plans, going out getting public input, making sure everybody's voice is heard, but that science is really the driving force as well. And so what the Game Commission does is we'll set rules and regulations around, you know, take of animals um, and habitat projects, how we spend money to restore habitat and bring back species. So it's really, you know, I'd say the Game Commission really serves three critical uh, purposes. One is protecting people's voice that decisions are made out in public. Um, the, the commission meets, uh, due to the Open Meetings Act, they cannot predetermine decisions. When I was on the commission, I couldn't call up other commissioners and say, hey, I think we ought to vote this way. What do you think? That's, that's a, a rolling quorum. You cannot like, try to line up all those votes ahead of time. You really want to preserve that decision-making in public. So you hear people's voices and get a chance to make that. And the other, the other things are really to serve as a shield so that wildlife management does not have a political swing up and down where you, know, you have people who are appointed, they serve terms, they have to come be bipartisan. Um, you can't have more than, there's seven commissioners, you can't have more than four from any one political party. And they're supposed to serve across terms of uh, governors. So governor appoints them, confirmed by the Senate. It's you know, sort of like if you think of the way the judiciary system is supposed to work, where you have you know, people who, who are qualified, appointed, and then you know, work on creating those rules and regulations, but with a lot of public input. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> so one of the issues that I've been hearing about is um, stream access. And um, if I have this right, in 2018, there was a new rule that allowed people who own land next to a stream or a river to petition the Game Commission to close access. Um, Am I explaining this right, or what's the deal with this rule? Yeah, you have it right. I mean, it was, you know, and even stepping back from that rule a bit, you know, we had a, a law student at, at University of New Mexico that, that uh, wrote an opinion and said, hey, two state agencies are, are interpreting stream access differently in this state. The Environment Department is giving guidance to people who want to go float New Mexico's rivers and saying, not only can you touch the bottom of the stream when you're floating, if you hit an obstacle, a tree or something, you have a legal right to um, go around that and, and portage around it because our water is publicly owned and you have a right to, to float it. And if you touch a bottom in the incidence of that, that that's okay, you know? And, but the game department, which you know, I was responsible for overseeing there for a, a period of time, they just told people you can't, you can't touch a bottom. And they gave a completely different guidance. And so the law student at the time said they thought the environment department was right. And so Lucky Varela, who was a representative who grew up in Pecos, he asked for an opinion from the Attorney General and said, who's right here? The Attorney General, again, kind of sided with the Environment Department idea, but the administration at the time did not pass the rule that would have been back in the Martinez administration, like you said, passed the rule that landowners could petition to close off sections of stream. Okay. And so when I came on, that rule was still in place, and we had several petitions come in, and um, we ended up denying those petitions. We didn't think that... Um, that it was right to close those streams based on the facts of the case. And the Supreme Court has now taken up. They're, they're the right entity to determine uh, constitutionally, is there a right to uh, travel along our public streams or, or not? And so they'll, they will take up that, that uh, position now. But the, the landowners who, who had petitioned for those, 
you know, obviously had very strong opinions, and, uh, but there's a lot of public input as well on it. So, like I mentioned, um, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham recently removed you from the Game Commission. What were you told and why, why were you removed from the commission? Well, I, I wasn't given a reason. <laughs> I had a year left in my term and uh, I got a short letter that said from, that the governor, that I have the authority to remove you and therefore I am removing you. And, you know, my take is that it was because they're you know, one of the landowners in particular who had petitioned, who had really started this drive, the petition to close off streams, was a large political donor. And, you know, I, when I got on the commission, I was there to serve the public, not to serve anybody's political interest. And I was not willing to kind of go along with what a, a certain landowner would want. And that, that's, um, I would say that, you know, we have this amazing heritage in New Mexico where, you know, we have public lands, public waters, and our wildlife, like we talked about, is publicly owned. And there is a push to privatize, to you know, make that, that access, not shut it down, but make it so that the wealthiest, most privileged get that access and that the general public doesn't. And that goes to some of our hunting rules as well. And I just, you know, I, I really believe that we have to preserve that equal access um, for the public. It's an, this incredible heritage we have. And, and so, you know, I just, when I went into the commission, I thought, well, I'm not going to change my values for that. And I, I, I do think that's the reason I was removed. Getting ready to talk to you, I looked up on the Game Commission's website, and there's only four commissioners currently listed. Yeah, that's a bare quorum. So, um, you know, to ha if one person didn't show up, they couldn't even hold a, a meeting now. And, and the, our hunting rules and regulations go on a four-year cycle, so they have to be set. So the, the governor is going to have to uh, appoint new commissioners soon. Um, because, you know, we won't have uh, hunting seasons, <laughs> you know, won't, won't be able to go forward without the commission there to kind of set those rules. Yeah, and even though you're not on the commission anymore, I know you've been active on these issues for a long time and, and paying attention to the commission for a long time. What do you hope, um, what do you hope that that commission can be? Oh, yeah, well, you know, there was, like I said, it's 101 years old, and you look back to the history, and there was... There was two calls when the commission was created. One, it was get the game department out of politics. And, and I think that still stands true today. We have to restore that political shield. And commissioners were not supposed to be removed without cause. That was never the intent. But there was a court decision in the Richardson administration about a completely different kind of commission, the Judicial Standards Commission. And Richardson had removed just everyone. And uh, there was a lawsuit and the, the court ruled that if there's not a very specific process spelled out to remove a commissioner for cause, then they serve at will. And so I would say that's sim that would be similar to, you know, if you had um, justices who could just be pulled back off the court if the governor didn't like a, a decision they made. You know, that's, that, so it's no longer serving that political shield. And I think updating that law is super important. It's kind of restoring the original intent, but, um, but with new, new ideas, new science, you know, I think it was, like we said, we still call it the Game Commission, when in reality it's a wildlife commission now. And so it, it, we need to update that. And then the other part of the, you know, that I think is really important is it was to protect all the wildlife of New Mexico was the, was the rally cry. And there was another court decision back in like the 50s that said um, the justice reading Supreme Court decisions isn't usually super exciting and fun, <laughs> this one is a little hilarious. The, the, the justice who wrote the, the state Supreme Court decision said that we can't let the commission protect any wildlife species it want. My God, they could protect jackrabbits and, and say jackrabbits are a game species. Well, now we have an endangered species of jackrabbit, <laughs> the, uh, the white-sided jackrabbit that you know, the commission is doing a lot to, to try to protect. And so restoring that original tent, we have a, just a patchwork of protection. Some reptiles are protected, some kinds of birds, but you know, we have species that are in need, that are declining, that the commission cannot um, necessarily protect. So I think the legislature, I would say, needs to take action on, on two things, that just kind of restore the original intent with new knowledge, and that's the, um, that commissioners can't be removed without cause. Um, because you do need that political shield and then for wildlife management so science guides it but we have a lot of public input and then the other part is you know kind of modernizing that it's not just about game species that it really acknowledging that it's all all our wildlife that they 
Game Commission or Wildlife Commission is responsible for overseeing. Okay. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it went by quick. <laughs> thanks, Laura. We asked the governor's office for comment about best box removal from the commission. Uh, Press Secretary Nora Myers Sackett said there was a, quote, disagreement of mission, end quote, unrelated to stream access. She said the governor's respects and appreciates Best Box, quote, dedicated years of service and advocacy, end quote, and said they plan to fill the outstanding vacancies before the next game commission meeting. We call the department to find out when that meeting will be held. It'll be sometime in February, but right now there's no date. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We hope you have a terrific week. We're already busy at it this week. Lots of great content coming your way. And as always, keep up with us on social media. There may be some things that pop up there during the week you're interested in as well as we do Facebook Lives. And uh, also just try to keep you up to date, especially on the legislative session. So Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, you can find us any of those places. Just search for New Mexico in focus. And if you're especially interested in following the legislative session here on the remaining days, it's a great way to do that. Also want to point you to another podcast called Your New Mexico Government or YNMG for short. That's a project we're working on with KUNM Radio and three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the very talented Kave Mahawed gets you caught up on all the things happening in the roundhouse. So again, your New Mexico government, wherever you get your podcasts, encourage you to subscribe. You'll be up to date. These are short, digestible podcasts designed to really help you navigate everything going on in Santa Fe for the next less than two weeks. That's all that's left of the 30-day session. All right, but that wraps it up for now. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. We'll be back with a new episode in a few days. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy.